actually learn work and play. That we would demonstrate the good news that in the person of Jesus, we have become one with God. And in this oneness, in this oneness with God, in Christ, are all of the promises of Israel, all the promises of life and peace and unity. They've all been fulfilled and you are included. That's the good news. That's the good news that we carry. And that is the purpose of this book. You'll remember, and we've spoken about, about this a few times, that right at the end of John chapter 20, he says this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Amen. This is why, like right right at the outset, like straight out of the gate, verse 1 in chapter 1, John echoes the opening words of Genesis and he beautifully establishes the true identity of Jesus and he says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the word is God. Always has been, always will be and life and light and love is found only in him. Throughout the the first 11 chapters that we looked at, John has constantly drawn links between past and present and future and specifically he's drawn on the story of Moses and John reveals that Jesus himself is the new Moses. He is leading a new exodus into a new promised land. He is establishing a new and eternal people, a new Israel. And already Jesus is suggesting that this promised future is available now to all who believe. We looked at how um, the Jewish feasts and festivals and observances, they all actually point to Jesus. They point to who he is and what he's doing and what it is that he is ultimately going to achieve. We looked at weddings and the Sabbath and the celebration of Passover. We looked at the Feast of Tabernacles and all of these these deeply significant Jewish celebrations, they point to Jesus and they point to his place in the kingdom of God and they point to his eternal vision of life together. We looked at the seven signs that John records. You might remember that this this number seven just keeps occurring all throughout John. But these seven signs, they all point beyond themselves. They point to something ultimate, some ultimate reality. We looked at turning water into wine at a wedding, the healing of the royal official son, the healing of the paralytic man, 
feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing of the man who was blind from birth. And then the crescendo, the peak of all of this, which we looked at just before Christmas, was raising Lazarus from death. And again, these are all significant confirmations and they are metaphors and they are precursors pointing toward the identity and pointing toward the purposes of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah that all of Israel had been waiting for. And so that's the first half of John and it peaks with this raising of Lazarus. And all, all of those messages, they're all actually on YouTube and they're all labelled and they're a great resource for you to, to make use of. The second half of John's gospel has a different agenda. So now that we've established the identity of Jesus as the, as the divine, as the eternal son of God, as the fulfilment of all prophecy and hope, which is why people are out to kill him, now that we've done that, John's going to zoom in on the final days, the final week of Jesus' life and ministry in Jerusalem and on his execution and his resurrection. But before we do that, something significant must occur. And it occurs in the most scandalous way and it comes with an incredibly challenging subtext. So remember we've just seen Lazarus, Lazarus raised. We've just seen Lazarus raised from from the dead. And so today's scene is linked to that. So we're starting at John chapter 12 and it's the first 11 verses and I'm going to read from the contemporary English. Six days before Passover, Jesus went back to Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from death. A meal had been prepared for Jesus. Martha was doing the serving and Lazarus himself was there. Mary took a very expensive bottle of perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped them with her hair and the sweet smell of the perfume filled the house. A disciple named Judas Iscariot was there. He was the one who was going to betray Jesus and he asked, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? Jesus did not really care about the poor. Sorry, Judas. <laughs> Judas, very clear. Let's be clear. Can we edit that maybe? Judas did not really care about the poor. He asked this because he carried the money back and sometimes he would steal from it. Uh, This scene, it takes place in all four Gospels. It's a little bit different in each one. Luke has quite a different take. Um, But Jesus is in Bethany. He is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, Matthew and Mark place this scene at the house of Simon the leper, and Luke tells is, in fact, a Pharisee. And so this is a celebration. It is a thank you dinner to for. Jesus for raising Mary's brother Lazarus to life. So it's a really, really good reason to have a party. So this is not Mary Magdalene. It is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Lots of Marys. And Lazarus is there. 
and he is not a drooling, flesh-eating zombie. He's probably eating chips and dip and having a glass of vino. And then his sister anoints Jesus' feet. And Matthew and Mark say that she anoints his head with a year's salary worth of perfume. And Judas is like, what the heck, Mary? Like I could have bought myself like a new fuel-injected split windscreen donkey for that. I mean, I mean, you could have sold that and give the money to the poor. And then John very helpfully narrates Judas's true motive. He doesn't really care about the poor. He just wants to appear to be righteous. And then Jesus replied, leave her alone. She has kept this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. A lot of people came when they heard that Jesus was there. They also wanted to see Lazarus because Jesus had raised him from death. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus. He was the reason that many of the Jewish leaders were turning from them and putting their faith in Jesus. It was pretty interesting. It's also interesting that Mary uses burial perfume to anoint the eternal one. By the way, and this is important, Messiah means the anointed one. And here is his anointing. And he's anointed by a woman. And he's anointed by a woman using burial perfume. And the sweet smell of the perfume filled the house. And what the disciples did not realise in that moment was that from now on, a smell normally associated with death and with mourning was from now on going to be a symbol of life, hope. From now on, every time the disciples would smell this perfume at a funeral, their minds would rush back to this moment, to the resurrected one. And they would be reminded that death is not the end. This is another deeply symbolic scene and Mary's extravagant and scandalous scandalous gesture of worship is often what takes our attention and it really, really should. But that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. Instead, we're going to focus on this really brief and weird interaction between Jesus and Judas. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And the first thing we need to establish here is that this statement by Jesus, it is directed specifically at Judas and it is not a universal statement. Judas, you will always have the poor with you. You won't always have me. You'll remember in Matthew 28, verse 20, it's after Jesus' resurrection and it's at their commissioning, Jesus says to the 11 disciples, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And so this statement, you won't always have me, is directed uniquely at Judas. 
when we fail to recognise that this, this interaction is specifically between Jesus and Judas, then we can fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus' comment about the poor is a universal comment. And it can and it has been used to justify a lack of action regarding the poor. It's been used by governments. It's been used by churches. It has been used by an by entire denominations to justify and as an excuse for low expectations and a low priority around our efforts to eliminate poverty. You will always have the poor with you. There's nothing you can really do about it, so just focus on evangelism. Whenever this verse is used to minimise our responsibilities, it is a gross failure to grasp God's deep compassion for the poor. Compassion for the poor, for the outcast, for the marginalised, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, it is a central concern of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There are more than 2,000 verses regarding the poor compared to about 370 verses on prayer. Care for the poor characterised the Jews. It was one of their cultural and religious peculiarities that set their culture apart from all other surrounding cultures. To think that concern for the materially poor is a peripheral or an optional element of faith would be to misunderstand what it means to be a Jew at a most fundamental level. And so when John explains that Judas doesn't care for the poor, that is a most serious indictment against Judas, against his character, against his faith. And so here, at this critical and this controversial moment of the anointing of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus is saying something about the continuity of our obligations regarding the poor as well as something about his own relationship with the poor. And we don't want to miss it. When Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, he is quoting Deuteronomy 15.11 and everybody in the, in the room would have known it. And he does this a lot. He opens a few lines of Old Testament scripture and then he expects the listeners just to fill in the blanks so that we understand that there is continuity in the story. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and other Israelites in need. The fact that the poor are among you represents an obligation and not an excuse. And the context of this command is material Need And we can whitewash this sometimes by thinking that it is spiritual poverty. This is a responsibility to the materially poor. And so whether we ought to have compassion for the poor is not in question here. It is a given, it is a mandate, and it is a base expectation of the Jewish tradition. So just a few verses earlier in verse 4 we read, there should be no poor among you. 
There are no poor in the kingdom of God. That's the eternal reality. And so therefore there should be, that should be the reality among his citizenry here on earth. There should be no poor among you. And what becomes abundantly clear is that this is not just an Old Testament expectation because we see the early church embrace exactly the same obligation. Get this in Acts 4. All the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. And so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. Because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And so this raises a question. Why then did Jesus rebuke Judas? Now, of course, we know that Jesus knows Judas's heart, but if this is our mandate that there should be no poor among you, why doesn't Jesus agree with Judas in principle? Come on, Mary, cut that out. Judas is right. It's not what he says. Jesus says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. If we're indeed commanded to care for the poor, then why does Jesus defend Mary and rebuke Judas? Here's what I think. To love the poor is to love what God loves. And God loves the poor so much that he has chosen throughout all of Scripture to personally identify himself with them. Look at this. A few examples just from Proverbs. Proverbs 19. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they've done. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honours God. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. And so the God of the Old Testament identifies himself personally with the poor. If you're ministering to the poor, you're actually ministering to God. If you're mistreating the poor, you're actually mistreating God. And, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus continues to self-identify with the poor. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. He became poor. So that by his poverty you might become rich. And then again in Philippians 2, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave. Jesus' identity is so conflated with the poor and with the oppressed that in the absence of the physical Jesus, ministry to the poor, is worship of God. James writes, pure 
and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. In the Old Testament, we see prophets like Samuel, Daniel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, Zechariah, Malachi and more. They talk about true worship in the same way. They say, forget about all the religious stuff that you do and instead learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. That is the worship that God accepts, loving what God loves and correcting and reconciling when we see the order of the kingdom broken and out of whack. Among many other things, I think this is what Jesus is saying. While I'm physically with you for this short time, this generous and heartfelt gesture that Mary is making, it's totally appropriate. And I welcome the love that she is showing because it reflects the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son that the and the love that the Son has for you. But in my physical absence, you are performing the same act of worship every time you show compassion for the poor. I think it's true. And nowhere is this more clear and more obvious than in Matthew 25, 34 to 46, and this should put a rocket up us. That's to me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne, all the nations will will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will say, I tell you the truth, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. No reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? He will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. 
They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness will go to eternal life. In Matthew's Gospel, this teaching of Jesus, it takes place immediately before this incident with Judas and Mary in the garden, right before it. So when Judas has a crack at Mary and says the perfume should have, should have been sold and the money given to the poor, Jesus, Judas is riffing directly off Jesus' teaching. But of course, Jesus knows his heart. In Judas's fake concern, in Judas's betrayal of the poor, Christ has already been betrayed. Away with you. It seems to me that worship of Jesus and ministry to the poor are two sides of the same coin. You'll remember in Matthew and in Mark when the teacher of the law asks Jesus which is the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and this is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word for is like it is homoios and it means equivalent. It means corresponding. It means the same. The New Living gets it pretty right when it says the second is equally important. Loving God and loving others go together. There is no sequence. There is no separation. There is no rank. You cannot love others and specifically the poor, it seems, without ministering to Jesus. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. And you cannot claim to love Jesus and ignore the poor. Caring for the poor and worshipping Jesus are the same manoeuvre. You do it for them, you do it for me. Don't do it for them, don't do it to me. Now this is not works. This is evidence. To love what God loves is evidence that the love of God is indeed in the believer. We do not love and serve the poor so that we are counted among the sheep. Rather, the most obvious and potent evidence of our abiding love is in our attitude and in our actions toward the poor, toward the orphan, toward the widow, toward the outsider, the oppressed, the excluded, the unclean. Loving the poor is not something else you need to do so that you might be saved. Rather, it is what you do because you are saved. It is the evidence of belonging to a kingdom where there are no poor. It is the evidence of of the pursuit of unity and freedom and justice. It is the evidence of the dignity of our brothers and sisters, no matter what their station. It is the evidence of the character of God within us to the world. John writes this in 1 John 3.16. We know what real love is. Because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? There is no evidence of love, no evidence of the presence of God in our lives if our deeds do not demonstrate compassion for those in need. 
God does not care about our Bible study or our personal piety. He is not interested in all the Christian activities that we busy ourselves with. We do not have compassion for our brothers and sisters in need. The love of God is not in us. God says in Isaiah 1.15, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I won't look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. The good news that Jesus came to proclaim, the good news that we carry is good news to the poor. When Jesus commenced uh, his ministry, his, his inaugural address, opening his mission to planet Earth in Luke 4, 17 goes like this. Jesus stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. If your good news is not good news to the poor, it's not good news. If you carry the good news, the news that, that in Christ we have new and we have everlasting life, the news of peace and unity and freedom, of wholeness and flourishing, that news is for the poor. And when we deliver that good news in word and in deed, and as you do it for one of the least of these, we do it to him. In this scene where the Messiah is anointed, he confirms the Father's unending compassion for the poor. There is no poverty in the kingdom of God. No orphans, no outcasts, no forgotten ones, no outsiders. There are only children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, heirs and citizens, image bearers and friends. Poverty is an abomination to the kingdom of God. It is an injustice of the most heinous sort. So the heart of God inexorably gravitates to the poor and so should ours. Our attitude toward the poor reveals our attitude toward Jesus, toward the Father and toward his kingdom. When our hearts accord with his and we show compassion for the poor as a true expression and an overflow of the good news, then we, just like Mary, are pouring perfume at the feet of Jesus. And if this is confusing and if it's confronting to you, then my encouragement is that you would lean into that discomfort and that you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the Father's heart for the poor and not just so that we, so that we might know it, but so that we might act. Because you and me have been anointed, we have been commissioned in the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. And whatever we do, for the least of these, him. Let's pray. Lord, this is hard. It exposes something within us that, that is challenging and that can hurt. 
Our desire is that that your truth would infiltrate our hearts and our minds and that we might come more and more to see the injustice of poverty, of oppression, of persecution, of the outsider and recognise that in your kingdom reality those things don't exist and that we have been commissioned by your spirit and in your name to participate in your work in making earth more like heaven. That must include compassion for the poor. Would you instil in our hearts a heart and a care that we might not have and we certainly don't have it sufficiently so that we would act and so that we might resemble you? Our desire is that that we would be involved in that work that, it, that, that embraces all of creation as part of your kingdom. Would you indwell us and would you equip us and would you inspire us and would you give us opportunity to show compassion for the poor? And as we do that for the least of these, may it be done unto you. In the name of the Father, Son and Spirit we pray. Amen.